Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. All right, we are in Matthew. Please turn in your Bibles. We're in Matthew chapter 5. We will pick up there. Grateful for the opportunity that a number of the men got away this weekend for a few days, Friday night, Saturday. And uh, we're hearing good reports, so I'm grateful. Jim and Will, thank you for all the work you guys did putting that together, and I know the guys were blessed. As I mentioned, we are in Matthew chapter 5. We're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and we are now in verse 17 of, uh, of the sermon. So let's go before the Lord. Father, we just pray for uh, your miraculous hand to touch the sound system, that all would work well. Lord, we, uh, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather together. Lord, you've blessed us with this space to meet. Lord, you've given us a desire in our hearts to gather together, to sit under your word and to grow and, and to go and take those things, uh, Lord, into our daily walks and to be used to reach other people. And, and Lord, we do pray that that prayer would be answered. Father, our desire is to see, Lord, us just have a closer walk with you. Understand your will for our lives, Lord. Be more in tune with the leading of your spirit. Lord, uh, be more inclined to say yes, walk in obedience. Lord, uh, more repentant than perhaps ever before. And Lord, we do pray that uh, we would have the opportunity to introduce others to faith in Christ as well. And Lord, that when those doors are open, Lord, we would be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within us. So, Lord, we're asking, Lord, for your blessing on this time. Lord, uh, that it would be more than just putting an hour in on a Sunday morning, but that we would truly come and meet and sit in your presence this time. And we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the Sermon on the Mount, we've looked at this idea of uh, what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We spent some time considering that. We, we looked at, you, you really want to be happy in life or whatever, then you need to be in tune with what God is doing and what God designed you to be doing. So that was the blessed life that we talked about. Uh, last week we spent some time considering this idea of being salt and light. And so today we move into sort of a different section of the Sermon on the Mount. And this section, I'll give you an idea of what we're going to talk about. Look at some of these verses with me. There are two phrases that are repeated again and again in the next about 30 verses or so. And they are these. If you look at verse 21, it's the first instance here that we, th- we see it. It says, you have heard that it was said. So just quickly glance, look at verse 27, you've heard that it was said. You look again at verse 31, it has been said. Verse 33, verse 38, verse 43. Each time a paragraph essentially begins, Jesus says, now you've heard people saying this. Now if you will, look for with me, look at verse 18. He says, but I say to you, he says, truly I say to you, verse 20 Again, following you've heard that it was said, verse 22, he says, but I say to you, and then going, verse 22, 26, 28, 32, 34, 39, and 44, in response to that opening statement of you've heard that it was said, he responds by saying, but I say to you. Now I want to give you an indication of how the people respond, or or they respond to what he is sharing. Look, if you will, to chapter 7. And look toward the end of the chapter, verses 28 and 29, the very last two verses of the chapter. Notice what it says. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as, the one, as one who had authority and not as the scribes. 
Now, in Jesus' day, it was very common, and it's not too uncommon today as well, for people, teachers, to boldly proclaim what other people had said. And so the teachers would get up there and they would say, so-and-so, Rabbi so-and-so says this, or Rabbi so-and-so says that. And the idea was to boldly proclaim the words of somebody else. And I think the idea was, if somebody then gives you a hard time as the teacher, you could just simply respond and say, hey, well, look, your problem's not with me, it's with Rabbi so-and-so, who died a hundred years ago, or whatever, but that's who your problem is with, and then they could just sort of skate away from there. And the practice became so common to essentially teach what other people taught, that schools of thought began to develop following this rabbi or that rabbi. And now you enter onto this scene, this increasingly popular carpenter from the despised city of Nazareth, a guy who attended no religious schools and really had no religious, formal religious training at all, never sat at the feet of any of the renowned rabbis, and he's getting up there, and instead of saying, Rabbi so-and-so says this or says that, instead he says, but I say unto you. And no wonder, as we read at the end of the sermon, that the people were so astonished that he taught them with such authority. Because nobody teaches like that. Nobody taught like that in that particular day. And so this next portion of the Sermon on the Mount, it's going to be a significant departure from any sort of teaching that those that were sitting there at his feet would have been used to in their day and in their age. And honestly, it would have floored them. They would have been shocked initially, probably missing some of the first words that he had to say because they were more caught by the idea, the different style of his teaching than they were perhaps what he was teaching. But then I think as the sermon began to go, and as he began, it began to resonate in their hearts, they're thinking, I don't even care his style. Did you hear what he just said? I remember when Martin Luther King, I mean, I wasn't there, um, but you were probably there, Rich. But when Martin Luther King was given his famous speech, 1963, that speech, I Have a Dream, there on the uh, steps of the Lincoln Memorial, uh, you know, lots of people were supposed to gather. Martin Luther King was just one of the many people that were supposed to speak on that particular day. And each of the speakers were given by the people that put the, the event together a very strict time limit. You have 10 minutes, Martin, uh, or Dr. King, you have 10 minutes and that's it. Because their fear was if anybody went on too long, that the crowd, thousands of people would get restless. And, it would, and they had no idea the speech that was about to come out of Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, mouth. And so there's a guy, he's standing behind Dr. Martin Luther King just off. And depending on the, the camera angle, you can see him every now and again. And initially, he tells the story now, initially, Martin Luther he, King, he went on for like six minutes, seven minutes, eight minutes. And he's looking at his clock like, this guy better get off or we're going to have a real problem. And then it was 12 minutes and then it was 14 minutes. And finally, he's, he was just so engrossed by what King was saying. He said, you know what, just go. Just keep on going, brother. And I, I similarly think that perhaps is what's happening here with the Sermon on the Mount. People are initially thinking, you know, who is this guy? He speaks in such a way that we've never heard anybody speak. It's unlike anything that we have ever heard. I think some of them began to think, you know, is this some new sort of religion? He's, you know, he's a Jewish guy. 
but he's not like the Jewish rabbis that we're familiar with. And I wonder if Jesus perhaps anticipates that thinking or can sort of have an idea of what the people are thinking. And so it leads him to launch into a discussion of the Old Testament law and the teachings of Judaism. And that's where we begin today. If you look at verse 17, it says this. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you remember, Jesus had been out and about now for just a little bit over a year. So people were growing familiar with him and his ministry and his teachings. And it seems as if, excuse me, it seems as if people were beginning to suggest that perhaps Jesus was teaching something contrary to the Law and the Prophets. And when we say the Law and the Prophets, it's a way of referring to the Old Testament. And so it seems as if rumors were going around that, that, yeah, that's a guy teaching new stuff or something, contrary to the Law and the Prophets. And so Jesus now begins this little section, and he does so by definitively declaring that he hasn't come, notice, to abolish the Law and the Prophets. Verse 17, don't think I have come to abolish the Law and the Prophets. And then if you look down a little further in the verse, he says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And then he goes on to make that point by giving an example. And as you see in verse 18, he he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, some of your versions will say not a jot or a tittle. Either way, they are descriptions of markings in the Hebrew language. So I think we have a little picture here to give you a rough idea. Right there. Do we? No picture? There it is. Okay, so we got a little picture. You see the tiny little markings that are there? Now they may seem insignificant, but they change the meaning of a word. They change the meaning of a sentence. We have a Hebrew study language? No, okay. She stayed away from that at school. But they change the meaning there of the section. And so Jesus' point, he says, I haven't come to change the law. In fact, I'll tell you this. Not even the smallest mark or the most insignificant letter of the law is going to pass away, is the point that he is making there. You might compare it in the English language to the dotting of an I or the crossing of a T. You can get away, I guess, not dotting your I, and people know what you mean there, can't you? Well, not when we're talking about the law. And so these are small markings in the language, but Jesus says not one of them is going to pass. And to make it clear, he's saying here, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. Now notice, Jesus doesn't say the law will never pass away, but that it will not pass away until it is accomplished, or as he says there, until it is, a, it is fulfilled. The law has a very specific purpose, and its purpose is often misunderstood. And so I want to kind of settle in here a little bit today and I look at it. The law has a very specific purpose and its purpose is often misunderstood. For most people, particularly this group we're going to look at in a few minutes here, the scribes and the Pharisees that are mentioned in verse 20, the purpose of the law was to establish a standard 
whereby if men live by that standard, they can get into heaven. For most people, the law was established to give us a standard that if you live by that standard, you can get into heaven. But the problem is this, that the law was never given as a means of salvation. So in the book of Romans, chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, he would write this, he would write, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. And then he goes on and he gives the purpose of the law and he adds these words, he says, Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the purpose of the law is not to give us a standard that if we live by that standard we can get into heaven. The purpose of the law is to reveal to people their sinfulness. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 7. He says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And he gives an example. I would have known what it, that I shouldn't covet. I wouldn't even know what that was if it wasn't for the law. So this is what we know about the law in the scriptures. Number one, that the law cannot save a person. That is keeping the law. Number two, that the law reveals sin. And then the third thing that we know is this, that the penalty of sin is death. Romans 3.23, it declares that the wages of sin is death. Another example, Galatians chapter 3, it says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. It brings death. You are a sinner. I'm a sinner. We admit that fact. I don't deny that fact. And the penalty of sin is death, and there's absolutely nothing the law can do about that. The one and only purpose of the law is to reveal to men their need. And so again, to quote the Apostle Paul, Galatians 3, he describes it this way in that book. He says, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by the law. In some of your versions, it'll translate guardian as tutor. Some will use the word as schoolmaster. And the idea is this, that the law can only bring you so far, and then it turns you over to that which was purposed for you all along. And so in this case, the tutor, the law, will bring us to the place where we realize our need, and then essentially it'll say to us, like a teacher would say to us, hey look, this is as far as I can take you. Jesus takes you the rest of the way. That's the purpose of the law. It's to convince us, once and for all, of our need for help, of our need for a Savior. And so the problem then with the religious leaders, not the problem with Judaism, but the problem with the religious leaders of Judaism in that day, is they were proclaiming what they saw the law for, and they saw the law as an end in itself. But the reality is this, the law is not the end in itself. The law is the means to the end. The law reveals your need for a Savior. And so Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. Let's continue. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, our tendency, religious teachers' tendency, is to relax the requirements of the law. But God, on the other hand, he will require every jot and every tittle to be upheld. We say, yeah, yeah, I know it says that, you know, but perfection's impossible. We tell people, you know, essentially, you know, just do your best. Be a good person, we would say. But the reality is this, that's not going to work. Keeping the whole law, every jot and tittle, is the means to salvation. And just because you can't do that, doesn't mean we can dumb it down to something you can do. 
Because dumbing it down won't accomplish anything. Because the standard is still the standard. And our tendency is because we can't keep it, to instead relax it. And then what do we do next? Then we begin to compare ourselves with others. Of course, conveniently finding others that aren't so good. And we say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy or that gal over there. And that may be true. You may not be as bad as that guy over there. But let me just put you right up next to God and compare you next to him. How you doing now? How's the comparison? Well, there was two groups of people that were notorious at this idea of comparing themselves with other people. And that was the scribes and the Pharisees. Now the scribes, they were the Old Testament scholars. These were the guys that studied, interpreted, commented endlessly on the Old Testament law. And so if there was anyone in society that you wanted to look at and you say, all right, give me a guy, give me a gal that knows the Bible, it would be these guys, the scribes. The Pharisees, they were the religious leaders. And these were the guys that sought to keep even the most minute of details of the law. And so the scribes, give me someone who knows the Bible, these were the guys, find for me someone that keeps the Bible. And so these were the guys that kept even the most minute of details. And so imagine the impact of Jesus' words in verse 20 when he says this, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I suspect people listening there either said or thought exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's impossible. Nobody's righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, it doesn't have recorded for us that they actually said that, but had they said that to the Lord, his response would have been something like this, that's right, and that's my point, that nobody can exceed their righteousness. He would go on, he would say, because those guys have been getting it wrong all along. They've been approaching the law as an end in itself, but the law's not an end in itself, Jesus would have said. It's a means to the end. You see, those guys were pursuing a righteousness based on keeping the law and thinking that was going to get them into heaven. And Jesus would have said, I tell you, you need a greater righteousness than them. To say it perhaps a different way, you need a different righteousness than them. Because their righteousness is not going to get them there. And I, then I think he would have simply said, let me explain to you what I mean by that, by that different righteousness. And now he starts digging in. And in verse 21 referencing those guys, essentially. Are we allowed to say those guys? Isn't that like considered inappropriate? Anyway, he says, You've heard that it was said by, of the, to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. He says, But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, we thought, we think, we're doing pretty well in life. I haven't killed anyone in my entire life. You know, I've done pretty well. I remember in, uh, we were in Belize. Kevin and I were in Belize, and we were ministering in one of the prisons. And Kevin began his thing. He was doing the whole uh, Ray Comfort, um, 
have you ever murdered anyone? And, and people say, no. And they say, well, have you ever been angry with someone? Well, Jesus said, you know, and you, you take them down this to show them that they're sinners and they need a Savior. And so Kevin begins his little message. The crowd is out there. How many of you, anybody ever murdered anyone? And one fellow, hard of English-speaking guy, he says, only two. Or whatever. And we're like, oh, okay. All right, you know. And he was proud of the fact that he had only killed two people. You know, most of us... We look and we say, well, I've gone all this time in life and never once, not even once, have I ever killed someone. And Jesus then instead, he says, that's good. But were you ever angry with your brother? And you're like, oh, well, a few times, yeah, I guess I was. He says, have you ever called somebody a fool or an idiot? Might be, you know, what we call. I, I, that comes out of my mouth a lot. I know, look at my wife. She's like, yeah. I don't call like people I know or I don't say it to their face. But I'm like, man, that guy is such an idiot or whatever. And I, I have to stop that. So you hear that and you say, well, you know, have I ever been angry? Have I ever called somebody like a fool or something like that? And then you begin to think, how am I measuring up? How are you measuring up now? Well, the attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees, their attitude was, as long as you follow these rules, don't kill anyone, you're going to be okay. But Jesus instead, he essentially says to them, following rules is fine. You could follow those rules. I'm glad you're not killing people. But what I'm really here to do is deal with the attitude of your heart, is where he's going to go with this. Because here's the truth. You can keep all of the rules and all the regulations in the world, and still be a hard-hearted, angry, mean-spirited, hateful person. And so Jesus is saying that the righteousness of the Pharisees, it's about finding how close you can get to the line without crossing over that line. But the righteousness, this different kind of righteousness that Jesus wants to speak about, is one that will cause you to want to stay as far away from that line as possible. You see the difference? Jesus wants to deal with the, with the heart. The Pharisees, they're talking about outward appearances and behavior, but Jesus is talking about the heart, which will inevitably affect the outward appearances and behavior. Now, this isn't the point of this particular passage, but since we're here, since we're talking about anger and things like that, I'll just pose some questions for you to feel bad about yourselves. <laughs> Do you have an anger problem? Do you have an anger problem? Some of you are shaking your heads, yes. Some of you are looking at your neighbor. You know, one of these things. Do you despise other people in your hearts? Maybe not a lot of people. But you allow yourself to despise some people in your hearts. Are you mean-spirited? Are you vindictive? If somebody has wronged you, that's alright, I'll just file it away. But you'll get yours. Do you do that? Are you unforgiving? Are you prone to hold grudges? Well, all of those, those are heart problems. And it's a problem that Jesus came to fix. Now, I would say this, though. It's important to point this out. I do think there are things that we should get angry about. And so when you see, for instance, social injustice in the world and in, even within our community, that should anger you and prompt you to action, move you to action. You know, you see these recent Planned Parenthood videos that um, have been posted throughout the summer. That should anger you. And it should prompt you to action. Corruption and abuse of power. Those things should really anger you. But if we're really being honest, however, the vast majority of things that we allow to anger us and control us don't really fit into those categories of things that should anger us. Typically, the cause of our anger is that we're selfish or we're proud or we're easily offended 
or things like that. We want people to overlook our transgressions, if we even admit having any. But we want people to overlook our transgressions, but then we hold their feet to the fire for the way that they have wronged us. And then that leads us to what the next verse is saying. Then we come to the place of worship, and we act as if everything is okay, everything is hunky-dory, everything's going great. Notice what Jesus says in verse 23. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, he says, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, he says, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And so, just in those couple of verses, Jesus makes it absolutely clear that it's far more important that your heart be in the right place and that you be reconciled to your brother than that you perform some religious duty. It's far more important that your heart is in the right place. That's what God is concerned about, not your religious duty. The Apostle Paul said this, he said, If possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. That is your religious duty. Not hypocritically performing a bunch of religious activities while all the, the while having a heart that's full of anger and hate. And so again, Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar, go. Be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have laid the pa- the la- excuse me, paid the last penny. Holding on to our anger and our bitterness ultimately will imprison you. And notice, I, love, I like this, this connection. Look at verse 26. Notice also, when all is said and done, you're the one that is paying the price. You will be the one paying the last penny. And I, I have an example from my life. Years ago, I had, a, I had a buddy, he was a Christian guy, and a good Christian guy. We were good brothers in the Lord. And he had done something to me, nothing serious, but he, it was just indicative of things that he had regularly done to me. And it started to annoy me, quite frankly, and bother me. And finally I decided, you know what, that kid, that guy, he was younger than I a little bit, but not too much though, he just drives me nuts, I'm done with him. You know, you ever do that? I'm just done with that guy. And you write him off from your life. And so for probably about three, four years, I didn't have much interactions with the guy. It wasn't like we bumped into each other here and there. But in my heart, I had written the guy off. And I was angry with him. And you would come to pray and whatever. And sometimes I wouldn't think of the guy at all. But other times it would sort of stir up in your heart or whatever. And I would say, well, you know what, Lord? He did these things to me. And justify my bitterness, my anger, my unforgiveness toward this particular guy. And I would say it was probably about four years. And finally the Lord was like, you know what? You've got to deal with that. You just can't continue in this particular way where you harbor this thing in your heart toward this guy. And so I ran into him. I called him, whatever. I, I made the connection with him. And I explained to him, you know, for the last three or four years, man, I was so mad at you, so bitter to you, and, here, and here's why. And you know what his response was? I didn't hear what somebody said, but he had no idea. He said, really? Or whatever. Really? I had no idea. And so that's my point. Who was imprisoned? Who was the one, you know, I think, I'll, I'll show him. I won't forgive him. And he was going on with life like everything was wonderful or whatever. I was the one imprisoned. I was the one dealing with all of that. Not him at all. You know, so let it go. Ooh, there's a song. Isn't that that song? Let it go. Yeah, I'll sing that again. We had the Lynch girls in the office the other day. 
and they had Frozen on in the other room or whatever. And I was like, turn that up! You know, because I wanted to hear that song. I love that song. And I went out and I sat and watched the movie with them or whatever. So if the study's a little weak, I, I, I spent a couple hours watching the movie. All right, let's go on. Verse 27, Jesus continues to confront this misinformed uh, understanding of righteousness. Look at verse 27. He goes on. He says, secondly, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. It's good, right? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye, Jesus says, causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. He goes on, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, he says. For it'd be better that you lose one of your members, one of your physical hands, feet, that kind of thing, than that your whole body go into hell. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they did rightly state that you shall not commit adultery. But they they left it at that. And Jesus now takes it a step further and he says, no, it's so much more than not physically touching another woman now that you are married. It's so much more than that. And again, notice Jesus gets to the real core of things, which is the heart. He says, but I say to you, everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Jesus says, great. You've not gone out and had an affair with another woman, but he says, have you allowed yourself to look lustfully on another woman? Jesus says, that's my standard that I'm going to present to you. I remember as a kid, we were trying to find the name of it this morning, we couldn't find it. I watched this dumb movie as a kid, and I watched a lot of dumb movies as a kid that just weren't worth the brain cells uh, to, to lose and invest into it. But I did. I watched a lot of them. And in this one particular movie, there were these two skeevy-looking, gigolo-type of guys. Uh, you can picture, try not to picture too much, but you, you get the idea of what I'm talking about. And they're at this beach resort, and they're lying down on the beach, and they're like, hey, you know, and they're like, all the ladies that are walking by, they're like catching their attention because they're sure that the ladies are looking at them because they think they're the best looking thing that's ever come uh, to that particular beach. And if, the story, if I remember the storyline correctly, these two guys connected with two ladies and pretended they were married so they could get the discount at the couple's sandals resort. Or whatever. But once they got to the resort, they went their separate ways. So these two guys now, they're out on the beach at the couple's resort trying to pick up ladies at this particular thing. And they're the scariest looking guys you could ever imagine, but they thought they were the best looking guys in the world. And finally, some lady comes by and she's like, hey, aren't you married? And the guy says this response that has stuck with me. I don't know why it stuck with me. I have movie lines in my head that I wish the Lord would redeem, but they're in there. But... The guy says this. He says, what? I can look, I just can't touch. Because he was pretending that he was married. Completely missing the whole point of what Jesus is saying here, if the guy ever knew what Jesus was saying. Because this idea of, I'm married, I can look, but I just can't touch, is the complete opposite of what Jesus is conveying here. Jesus makes it clear that everyone who even looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with that woman in his heart. So this guy in the movie, he thought he was doing pretty well. Like the guy in prison, only two. You know, he thought he was doing pretty well because he was keeping his hands 
to himself, but by Jesus' standard, the fellow was failing miserably. And so again, as it was with the case of dealing with anger, his point in the sermon is was not so much to discuss this idea. Well, let me, let me go back. His point in the sermon is not so much to deal with, with lust, but you may recall when we were dealing with anger, I said, let's just stop here and, and ask a couple of questions. So let me do the same thing as well here. How are you doing dealing with lust? Men and women, by the way. You know, women might look at this and say, well, it's only talking about men aren't allowed to look at the ladies or whatever. Men and women, it applies to each of us. How are you doing dealing with lust? Let me say this as straightforward as I can. You cannot keep Jesus' words here if you view or read pornographic material or graphic novels. You can't do it. And maybe you think, you know, it's okay. At least I'm not going out and doing anything. I'm not going out and having an affair or anything like that. You are in violation of the standard that Jesus establishes here. And you need to stop if you're a follower of Christ. Okay? Secondly... You can't fantasize about other people other than your spouse. You can't flip through magazines and check this guy out or check, check this guy, girl out and all of that stuff. And if you're engaging in those practices and thinking, well, at least I'm not going out and having an affair, you're deceiving yourself. And you need to stop. Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman or a man with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is why I believe that we, we read verses in the New Testament like this, that we are to take every thought captive. Will the fleeting thought come through your mind? Will you be walking down you know, the boardwalk or whatever and something will catch your eye? Yes, inevitably that is going to happen. And the fleeting thought is going to enter into your mind. But what do you do next? What do you do next? I had a friend when we were working with youth many years ago, he would say, count the nails, boys. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I'm like, what nails? You know, whatever. And I was like, why are we counting the nails on the boardwalk? And, and his, eye, his point was, something caught his eye. He was trying to save the rest of us from having it catch our eye. So he would say, count the nails. And inevitably, he would say, count the nails. And then I would say, why? And he would say, because there's some girl up there. Where? What girl? What are you talking about? You're right. You know, we should count the nails or whatever. But what do you do? Something crosses your eye. You have a choice to make at that point. Do you click on that link that is there because that thing popped up? Do you take another look? Do you glance a little bit further? Do you think about it? Do you consider it? Or do you start singing to yourself a praise song? Do you start thinking about dead kittens or something? (laughs) Something else to just get your mindset on something else. You need to take every thought captive. Now, the dead kittens is probably a violation of what Paul says in Philippians 4, but he says to think about those things that are pure and noble and honorable and lovely. That's what you need to consider. It's what you do with the passing images or the fleeting thoughts. Jesus goes on, he says in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, he says, tear it out, throw it away. He says, it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And then he gives a similar example about your hand. Is Jesus really advocating we cut off our hands and gouge out our eyes? I don't think so. I think Jesus is, I know he's not. His point is twofold. Number one, take sin seriously in your life. So if the internet causes you to sin, then cut the internet. Now people hear that and they're like, but that's so extreme. Cutting your hand off is pretty extreme too, isn't it? You see the point? 
Jesus is trying to be extreme here because he wants to make the point that sin is serious. If that cute co-worker causes you to sin, and I work with Will, and he's a good-looking fella. But if that co-worker causes you to sin, you know what? Quit your job and find another one. But that's so excessive. Yes, so is cutting off your hand. That's Jesus' point here. But here's the reality. The reality is this. You go ahead and cut off your hand. You go ahead and gouge out your eye and see if the proclivity of sin remains. And the answer is this. It will. It does. One person that I was listening to, reading to, or whatever, he mentioned that he has a good buddy. Sorry, he has a good buddy who's blind. And as he has this relationship with this good friend of his, his blind friend points out to him that the thing that he struggles with most as a Christian is lust. And, you know, there was this idea of, well, he can't see anything. It's not like he can see, you know, that girl walking down the beach or whatever it may be. Because it's not an eye problem. It's a heart problem. It's not a hand problem. It's a heart problem. So cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, and you'll see that the problem remains. Because it's a heart problem. And that's what Jesus has come to remedy. So there's two takeaways. Number one, take sin seriously. And then secondly, deal with the root of the issue, which is your heart. Now let's continue. Verse 31. It says, Now it was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, is making her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So again, Jesus begins the paragraph and he says, It was also said, Rabbi this or Rabbi that, they may tell you, Jesus says, that it's okay to issue a certificate of divorce for whatever reason. Jesus said, but that was not God's intent. Again, the predominant religious teachers of the day, they were wrong on this particular issue. And they were teaching the people to be wrong as well. And the result of that bad teaching was ultimately causing people to sin. The false teaching was that divorce was permitted, lust was okay, anger was fine, that righteousness was found in the keeping of the law, and in every one of those that's wrong, 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 wrong. In each case the teachers were wrong, and they needed to be corrected. And so Jesus does so. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Now there's more. Again, I feel like a... There's late night TV shows. Wait, there's more. There is more. Again, he says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. So the religious leaders were wrong on sexual uh, immorality, sexual purity. They were wrong on marriage and divorce. They were wrong on anger and revenge. And now Jesus is going to show his disciples that they were wrong on oaths and pledges. So he says, you've heard that you should not swear falsely. But I say, you really don't need to swear at all. You shouldn't swear at all. Take an oath at all. The scribes and Pharisees, now, they're taking the command 
from Exodus chapter 20. It says this in verse 7 of that chapter. He says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Most of us are familiar. comes from the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And they take that teaching, which is good. Don't take his name in vain, certainly. And they concluded that while it was wrong to swear in the name of the Lord, you could swear by all sorts of other things that you deem to be of great value. So some examples Jesus gives. You could swear by heaven. You could swear by God's throne. You could swear by the hairs on your head. Maybe in our day, we might swear by my, on my mother's grave. You ever hear an expression like that? And the problem is, the people, they begin swearing by these other things, and then breaking their oaths, because they weren't real things anyway. So they weren't, they weren't breaking an oath that they made to God, they were breaking an oath to some other thing that wasn't really that valuable anyway. I'll give you a dumb example. I pledge, for instance, if I pledged to you something a few years ago, and I said something like this, well, I swear on the hairs of my head. Well, a few years ago, that would have meant something. But now, since I really don't have any hair on my head, I could rationalize to myself, well, I don't have any hair on my head, so I'm really under no obligation to keep my oath. You, you see how they would, the loophole, it's, it's like the idea of the people with their fingers crossed behind them, as if somehow that gets them out of their particular oath. Or they say something, well, I never signed on the dotted line about that. I know I gave you my word, I know I shook your hand, or whatever, but I never actually signed on the dotted line. Jesus says, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Be a person of integrity. Honor your commitments. Stop uh, scheming to get over on other people. He says, be the type of person that can say you'll do it and actually be trusted to go and do it. I remember when I was a kid, those, those kids that were in our crowd that would swear profusely about something, I swear to God, man, I swear to God. And they would just go on and on. Those were the kids we didn't believe anyway. Because they felt the need to really swear because every other time they're a bunch of liars. And we all know the reality and the truth of it. And so here's the word you can take for yourself. Don't be that kid. Don't be that kid. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Be a person of integrity. Be a person that you can give your word and people will know it. You see, the rabbis of that day, they had a clever way around that. They could help you become a schemer. Just don't swear by God's name and you won't violate God's law. But you can deceive everybody else and rip everybody else off. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now again in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 21, it does speak of this idea of an eye for an eye. But in that section, it does so in the context of a civil government. By Jesus' day, the religious leaders, the teachers, they had moved that instruction from the sphere of civil government to the realm of personal, personal relationships. So, should a government respond when wronged by a foreign power? I think they should. Should crimes in our society, should they be identified, prosecuted, and ultimately punished? I think we would be wise as a nation to do so. In fact, I think it's the mark of a just society for those things to happen. 
And I think according to Romans 13, you can make a very clear case, it's not that complicated, but according to Romans 13, it would be an act of injustice for a a society, a government, not to do those particular things. But that doesn't mean that it has to carry over onto the personal level in every instance, despite what the rabbis of Jesus' day were teaching. Now let me clarify some points here. Jesus is not saying that you have to sit there and allow yourself to be beaten. Left cheek, right cheek, left cheek, right cheek. And you just kind of sit there and you take it. His reference is to someone that slaps you on the right cheek in in the sense of, you remember the the prim and proper guys you would see in like old movies or whatever, and they would take their gloves off and they would slap you with their glove across the face or whatever. They're not really trying to hurt you as much as they are trying to humiliate you. And that's the reference that Jesus is making in this particular thing. It's a person that is issuing a deep and personal insult against the person. Again, not to physically assault them, but rather to humiliate them. Jesus gives a few more examples. He says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, give him your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go to one mile, you go two miles. Now the tunic was a garment that was worn sort of between your undergarments and your outer clothing, your outer cloak. In this case, it's referred to specifically as a cloak. We don't call it a cloak. But under Old Testament law, a person had the right to take your outer cloak. You owed them some money, you didn't have the cash on hand, they could take your outer cloak. But even if you did do that, or they did do that, I should say to you, under law, Old Testament law, they were obligated to return that cloak to you at nighttime. So it's almost like a blanket, so you had something to keep you from the cold. That was the law. It says in Exodus 22, If you ever take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that's his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And so Jesus is addressing that. They take your cloak, you give them your uh, tunic as well, or whatever he said exactly there. The, The other example, under Roman law, a Roman soldier, they could come and tap you on the shoulder, they could tap you on the chest, and they could say, Here, carry this. And under Roman law, you were required to carry that for one mile. That's what you were under obligation. I'm reminded of the story where Jesus uh, is trying to carry his cross and he's having difficulty with it. And you have the story there of Simon the Cyrene and, and what do the Romans do? They say, you, carry that. And he has to carry the cross for the Lord. That's the idea there. You were under obligation to carry it one mile. Jesus says, carry it for him Two miles. They could not compel you to go two, but Jesus says, do it anyway. And I think what Jesus is speaking to in these verses here is this. We are, just as human beings, I think, we are so concerned about preserving our rights and guaranteeing our rights that we notice every single affront that comes against us. And we constantly try to fight and to defend ourselves and look out for ourselves and protect ourselves. And Jesus' point, I think, is this. In the kingdom of heaven, he says, look, you can stop worrying about your rights and instead trust me. He gives another example. We've got to move here time-wise. He says, you've heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than other people? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now hearing that, some of us in this room probably think this, and I suspect people that are there thought this. Come on, Lord. Now that's over the top, Lord. My enemies don't deserve to be loved. My persecutor doesn't deserve to be prayed for. And to that, Jesus would say, you know, I agree with you. And yet, my Father in heaven still shows them kindness as a citizen of heaven, which is what this whole sermon is about, should do as well. Now, as if that wasn't hard enough, all of those things weren't hard enough, Jesus wraps up this portion of the teaching. Look at verse 48, and he says, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now you hear that and you think, perfect? Lord, you say I can't get angry. And if I do, that that is equivalent to murder. You say I need to turn the other cheek when I'm being ridiculed. You say I am to bless those that are hurting me. And now you say, you finish it all off by saying I need to be perfect. And no doubt somebody sitting there, maybe us, we say, Lord, I can't do that. I can't turn the other cheek. I can't keep my eye from wandering, and I certainly can't be perfect. Can you, can you feel the sense of exasperation that may have been forming in his listeners and maybe something even that some of us are feeling here? In my mind, I like to imagine things, and I sort of imagine this as I'm reading this passage here. Jesus sitting there on the hill, the crowd sort of seated out there in front of him, Maybe people kind of filing in every now and again and just sort of picking up a place off on the side a little bit back. Not sure they want to fully commit, go up front, you know, but they're just on, on the outer edges. And in my mind, I imagine as Jesus is coming to this point in the sermon that there's a fellow or two that are off on the side that quietly kind of stand up and they try to just sort of slip away unnoticed. Kind of saying to themselves, you know what, I'm in the wrong place because I can't do what this guy is asking for me to do. And then in my mind, I imagine that Jesus kind of sees that guy getting up and trying to slip away, and he says, you're leaving? And then there's sort of this moment, and the guy kind of looks back and hoping he's not talking about him. But, you know, everyone now is looking at him, and so he, he kind of looks back, and he catches eye contact with Jesus. Doesn't really say anything initially, but he finally breaks down, and he says, teacher, I'm sorry. I love everything you have to say. And as I'm sitting here, my heart is alive within me. It's resonating with what you have to say. But honestly, teacher, I can't be the type of person that you're describing. I just don't have it in me. I'd love to be, but I can't. I just don't measure up to that standard. He might say something to him like, Teacher, if that's what, it mean, what the Old Testament law means, then I have to confess to you that I'm nothing but a lost and hopeless sinner. And then in my mind, I imagine Jesus responds to him, that's exactly what I hoped you would get out of this message, is that you would realize that you are a lost and hopeless sinner, because now you understand that righteousness is not found in keeping the law, and you yourself admitted in front of all of these people that you can't keep the law. Now you understand what Paul would later write, that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ 
for all that believe. And then Jesus would say to that guy, you, sir, are ready to be one of my disciples. And I just love it. Because even in my walk with Christ, I know these things. And yet I go back to the tendency of trying to earn God's favor by doing good things. And so I love even going back to this passage and considering it just to remind myself, it's His righteousness. Do I have to not kill people and and not look lustfully? Absolutely. Sure, there's a part I play in the process. But it's His righteousness that causes us to be righteous and the work that He did. And we can come and we can come and sit at His feet like these guys did and say, finally, you know what, I give up. And He'd say, great, that's exactly where I wanted you to be. Amen, would you agree with that? This is good news. Father, this is indeed good news. We read it and we think that it leaves us in this place where you want us to be perfect. And yet the reality is it leaves us in this place where you tell us we can't be perfect. And so we need to look to you for a different kind of righteousness altogether. The righteousness that was purchased for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we delight in that truth. Father, I do ask, though, that in that whole process, you would reveal to us areas where perhaps we were relaxing the standards that you would have for us. That we were sort of giving ourselves outs. At least we're not killing people. At least we're not having affairs with other people. But the reality is that our hearts were very, very far from you, even without that. So Lord, I I just pray, Lord, my heart's desire is that this study would draw us even closer to you in the work that you've done in our hearts, or in the case of those that yet believe here this morning, that you desire to do in their hearts. But keep drawing us to yourself, that we would cling to you with all of our being, and Lord, that you would receive the glory and the praise that only you deserve. We love you and we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.